are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. I think we're live, right on time. Hats off to Antonia Beltelgado, woo! <laughs> for taming the dragons of Zoom and Facebook Live simultaneously. You're gonna see that chalice disappear. That was Lori Stone-Sertoski coming to be a safety net, but we're delighted that everything worked today. Hi, I'm Meg Riley. Today I am in Boston at the UUA headquarters on Farnsworth Avenue place I don't come very often, but it's pleasant. I'm in a room with cookies I was excited to see, but they're really, really stale. I tried to eat one. I was like, <laughs> so I will not be chewing as we broadcast. Asha, how are you? Hi, I'm Asha Hauser, and I'm in Seattle, Washington um, at, I don't know, 4 a.m. it feels like. It's actually only 8, so I'm drinking my coffee, and I'm back from two weeks of nonstop travel that I was referring to as Asha's UU U.S. tour. So that's me. Michael Tino. Wait, wait, say more. Where did you tour? Well, the first October 30th, I was at the <clears throat> Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism Symposium, which almost everyone on this call was on. The majority of folks were there in St. Paul, Minnesota. I went home for one night. Then I went to the Pacific Northwest Ministers Retreat, where I co-led a workshop with the Reverend, De Reverend Deanna Vandiver on collaborative leadership. Then from there, I took a red eye to Baltimore, where I spent a few days at the Liberal Religious Educators Association Fall Conference, and we will be talking more about that next week. So that's me. Michael. Good morning, everyone. It's Michael Tino. I'm joining you from Peekskill, New York, uh, here in the Hudson Valley. Uh, it is a wonderful day. And um, I also wasn't here last week because I was on the road. Uh, I'm a member of a ministerial study group that meets in Cincinnati, it's the Ohio River Group. So we actually have a location on the Ohio River after many years of not, um, not on the river itself, but in Cincinnati. And um, it's good to be back with you all. I'm, I'm happy to tell you about what we studied and it would make a fascinating case study and the way we have well, now, don't, interesting conversations. Don't but, make book. What did you study? Um, so this year, uh, our topic was the Harlem Renaissance. We thought it would be interesting to uh, to do our studies on on this, given that it's about the hundredth anniversary of much of the Harlem Renaissance. And um, like uh, a typical group of almost entirely white, uh, well-meaning ministers, um, not all white, but almost entirely. Uh, you know, we took on a topic that was largely about people of color um, in uh, and his, the history in the, in the United States that uh, uh, did without having a conversation about um, how we were going to do that. So we plunged into this academic study of this of this topic uh, that uh, then wound up becoming conversations about. Um, how we were engaging with the topic. And the conversations about how we were engaging with the topic were at least as fruitful and deep and meaningful that, as the con conversations about the topic itself. So of course, learning our lesson, next year we're taking on queer theologies. Of course, there are a lot more queer folks in, in the group than there are people of color, um, though that group does not are not mutually exclusive um, groups. So it's, um, we're, I'm looking forward to it. I got myself put on the program committee so that I can actually guide how we talk about queer theologies um, rather than just react to how we talk about the Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> it's very good. And Antonio Beldogado, where are you today? I am at home. I'm in Delaware and I'm loving every minute of it. We had a cold day and the kids got to put on those million dollar coats we bought. So, <laughs> so it's really great. And I'll be here as your tech person 
please, please, please ask questions in the Facebook box and I will get them to our hosts and panelists and we'll have a great discussion. We care about what you think and what you want to say. So please don't feel shy. Go ahead and ask. Very kind invitation. Thank you. So today we have four members of the Commission on Institutional Change, which is really exciting. So I think we're going to plunge right in. Lots to talk about. Um, so I will um, do introductions. So the chair of the commission is Reverend Leslie Takahashi, who serves at the lead, as the lead minister at Mount Diablo UU Church in Walnut Creek. How long have you been there, Leslie? I have been there for, this is my uh, 12th year. Wow, that's great. So Leslie has done many, many things. Um, many of us know her from a whole variety of places over those 12 years and before then. But she is, among other things, the co-author with Chip Roush and Leon Spencer of the Arc of the Universe is Long, Anti-Racism and the UU Association, and has written, many of us use her meditations and worship materials and all kinds of things. So it's really wonderful to have you here with us, Leslie. Great to be here. Thanks, Meg. Yeah, and you are out west today. So like Asia, it's very early for you. Absolutely. So. I'll continue with out west. We have Natalie Fenimore, who's not usually out west, so it's especially early. The Reverend Dr. Natalie Fenimore is a member, and she is the Minister for Lifespan Religious Education at the UU Congregation of Shelter Rock in Manhasset, New York. Natalie served in the past as president of Lareda, the Liberal Religious Educators Association, and the vice president of the Star King School for the Ministry Board, as well as I'll say many, many other things. <laughs> so it's great to have you here, Natalie. Thank you, you. Have you had coffee? Yes. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're not used to being up at what would be five in the morning for you or whatever. It's, it's lovely. So um, Mary Byron is a member of the UUA President's Council, former tech executive with Golden's, Goldman Sachs in addition to serving on the commission, she serves on the audit committee for the UUA and has retired to Montana where she now runs a quilt shop. That, you know, that could be a good source, a good site for murder mysteries. I'm just saying quilt shops in Montana. They seem like there's a series there. <laughs> and my new friend from our mutual hometown of Akron, Ohio, Sir Labert. Am I saying your name right? Labert? Labear. Labear. Sorry, I like Jorge um, Espinel used to roar with laughter at my attempts to speak. So, Sir Labear is also a member of the commission and was an active participant of the Thrive cohort of the UUA UU College of Social Justice joint venture, Grow Racial Justice. He serves as a board member and racial justice task force co-chair of the UU Church of Akron, which is so exciting to me that we, we share that church. So, and I love that about our movement that y'all are all over the place. And I've said where you are now, but you've all been other places. So you've been looking at this association from multiple viewpoints for um, some of you less years, some of you more years. So I'm going to start from scratch because I missed the last time you were here. So tell me how the commission came into being. Leslie, you want to start with that one? Yeah, I'll start us off on that. So we were um, appointed by the UUA board in June of 2017, and the goal was to uh, address the institutional and systemic aspects of racism in our association. And it was, you know, of course, the spring of, of 2017 was a time of a lot of uh, turmoil, and um, it was a turbulent time among us. So we were asked to, to begin to look specifically at the theological mandate that we have as Unitarian Universalists to institute institutional change and to do that by um, looking with the use of outside, um, outside resources at um, our history about this, but particularly what um, to collect the stories of people who have been um, harmed through our continued um, institutional racism, and then to look at um, making systemic and institutional 
recommendations about how we can end this kind of cycle we're in, which we can talk about more, but that's really our charge. We have been working very diligently for more than two years now. We're in our last year and we will issue a report to the board uh, that will be a focus of General Assembly in 2020. Well, it's nice that you have such a tiny, easy thing to do. Right. (laughs) Just something to do in your your spare time, right? right? Yeah, exactly. A few conference calls should take care of it, right? Right, right. So, So I'll just lift up that we're proud on the view that two of the three um, instigators of the fall of 2017, Aisha and Christina, are here. And lots of good stuff came out of that, that it was a hard spring, but that many, many positive things have emerged. And that's what we like to talk about, is the positive change that, that we see going on. So what would you say, and I'll ask anybody on the commission, about where you see the kind of low-hanging fruit, the easy places to start. Are there any? We know that there are some really hard places, but are there some entryways, some on-ramps? I've now used two metaphors, and I'll stop. Any of you want to respond? Well, I'll I'll start, and then I know my fellow commissioners will will jump in. the thing that I think is the low-hanging fruit for us is to recognize that our association has had a history of this conversation. We've been having this conversation for decades and decades, and I've been a UU now for 30 years, more than 30 years, and uh, joined as a young adult and am no longer. Um, but the uh, the thing that I would say is that we have approached the conversation any number of times, and when it gets to the point of institutional change, we have backed back from it. So the So the low-hanging fruit, I think, is to understand that we need to have a consistent, um, mission-focused, ongoing commitment to doing this work as just a part of um, fulfilling who we are as a faith community. That's, to me, the low-hanging fruit. Others, now I'll invite my other commissioners to jump in on that. (laughs) Um, Well, this Natalie, I'll say this. Um, I think there are things that may be easier to do than other things, but all of it is hard. I think that what we're asking people to do as they enter into this process is to do the thing you can do and not defer to um, some hoped for ability to know every outcome, every potential, right? (laughs) Before you do anything. Uh, Sometimes we just have to try something. Sometimes we need to practice something and see how it works. It isn't that everything is going to be set in stone from the first step you take. It's a process that we're asking people to incorporate into the into the association. We're not, as Leslie says, this is not about, or at least not completely about, or primarily about personal transformation, but it's about the ability of the association to set sort of a container that's strong enough that it can hold us while we are engaged in personal transformation. And to recognize that the container that we've set has some problems in this moment that we should adjust. Right? So I think we all know that time and again, historically, the association has engaged in a program, right? So Journey Towards Wholeness, Jubilee Trainings, a program, right? And when we hit a hard place, we back off because we haven't built the institutional structure to hold the continuation of those difficult conversations or those difficult changes. So um, what we'd like to offer is the beginning of building a structure in the association that can hold those and a commitment, as Leslie says, to staying there for the long run, to actually embedding in our Unitarian Universalist Association a commitment to our theology and its link to justice. And that means justice for um, black, indigenous, people of color, people with what we often call to my dissatisfaction, marginalized identities, because I don't believe anybody is marginal. Um, And also that we understand that that is a benefit for everyone in the association, right? So if you're white identified, it isn't a question of your 
being pushed to the side in this conversation. It's you're embracing your place in this conversation. You're embracing what Unitarian Universalism can be for everyone, including what it can be for white people who would be enriched by a theology based in some, some justice work, in some equity work, in some beloved conversation way of being with each other. Um, so I think it's about pushing against what is now sort of culturally this um, theology of of less, of you know that that we are we're scarce, and trying to embrace a theology of of um, abundance, right? And that there is actually enough, and we should lean into that with some a little bit more um, certainty. Than we do. So I hope that we can, that the commission can just be a part of moving that process along. I think I would open with that the lowest hanging fruit is kind of that we that we listen, that we keep in, that we remain open to hearing the voices of others. Um, I think, you know, one of the most important principles to me is just that we respect the worth and dignity of of, of everyone. And I think that holding that everyone's voice and experience and lived experience is just as valuable um, as everyone else's is really important there. So listening and holding and gathering the stories of folks who have been harmed by our institution and by our kind of some of our cultural practices is it's key. It's it's so crucial. And I, I think that is kind of the to me that's that's a low hanging fruit. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with you know, as, as the principal of Stenkofa teaches us, there's nothing wrong with going back uh, to pick up something that you left behind to help you move forward. Mary, did you want to add anything? Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, I think um, also some of the low hanging fruit um, is just to get into conversation. And particularly for white people to learn to caucus together, to be in conversation about the kinds of impacts that they can have. I think that the pushback and the uh, resistance to moving some of the moving some of the institutional change forward um, is because people aren't really having deep conversations about what does that mean. So if it's as simple as put some put a line item in your budget for your organization, for your congregation every year and discuss how you're gonna use that to make the kinds of changes that are, that are necessary. Aisha, why don't you ask that question, it's good. Um, so I just wanted to lift up that this isn't the complete commission. So if one of you can name which commissioners aren't here on the show today, and of course you have an amazing support staff person. Yes, I just want to name that um, uh, Dr. Elias um, Ortega-Ponte, who um, is taking a very needed couple days off with um, his family, is not with us today, but he, um, he is the newly uh, named president of Meadville Lombard Theological School, and he is a very important part of our work, especially guiding our research efforts, um, and we, we can talk more about that later if we need to. And then we want to also always do a shout out to Marcus Vigilani, who has been just um, wonderful as our um, project manager. Thanks, Aisha. So you've been meeting for a while and you've, you did all those interviews and then how did you get from, this I think is the key that is why you're doing this. How do you get from the interviews, because I've also done some of those interviews, to the systemic change that's needed um, to, you know, really concretely making recommendations for the systemic change to uh, prevent the kind of harm and pain and damage that has gone on for decades. Because I, I, Leslie, just to reiterate what you said, I also have watched the same work be done over and over without changing. People treat it as if it's about this person and that person rather than really looking at the underlying structures. Thank you, Meg. I'll start. Um, the, so we have actually had contact with uh, about 1,100 UUs overall and collected testimony 
of various kinds. We've done a lot of focus groups. We've done individual interviews. We uh, have also received information from people throughout these couple years. And so one of the reasons that, um, at, that we, we wish that um, Elias was here to talk about this, but one of the things we've been doing, um, two things I would say, is that we've been engaged with um, an outside group. We've been using Visions Inc. in Boston to help us analyze some of the trends that we're seeing, not only in the interviews, but also going through the identity documents of the UU, UUA, looking at our bylaws, looking at all the structural pieces that we have to look at where we may have embedded that privilege, you know, that privileged sense um, for, for the majority into those documents. What we're doing, though, is a pretty systematic look through using um, some pretty exciting technological social science techniques where we're actually um, going through all of our, we have transcribed everything that we've gotten and we're going through all of it and coding it to look for patterns. And um, we also convened in the fall of 2018 um, a very um, thoughtful group of people who came together to think about um, what what seeing observers who've been you know looking at this for decades and um, importantly new entries and young adult entries into our faith because that of course is our future and they are often the people who are most shocked by what what they encounter so um, I'll say one other thing about this um, we your your mute is going on and off I'm not okay. sure why okay we collected stories because we know that stories have been out there and told one of the things we over and over again was that people have told the of the um aggressions and abuses that they've suffered from and i don't know why it's i don't know weird. either it's not on my <laughs> screen but it has been happening throughout. i've had to keep unmuting um, zoom zoom gods please be kind so I, I, I will just say that we felt it was important to create a record of this um, and, um, and also not to make any, not to make anybody um, the target of this because so easily in our culture, we make that about a particular story. And so what we're really looking at is the patterns across, across those stories in a very systematic way. I think that's all my mute button's gonna let me do. <laughs> Others want to speak to that? Well, you know, um, when you talk about us moving, you know, um, how we got, how we're gonna get to uh, this big question about what institutional change we might recommend. Um, I think it's, um, we try to manage this in the two ways that Unitarian Universalism can work. So there was data collection for people who need data, right? <laughs> people who that's, that's their way of assessing. And there was storytelling to, to acknowledge that there's another way of being and knowing about what's happening in your world. And that we have to be able to listen to each other's stories and understand their value and relevance as we go through uh, a community building, because we are building a community. Um, so, um, Primarily, Elias and uh, Marcus did a lot of work, and Mary then taking what you the patterns you see in those stories, and and linking them with this idea of data, right? So that people can see what it is that is happening in our association, and what kind of institutional changes might um, lessen those out those negative outcomes. Right? So I think um, I think we started with the kind of way that I. I've been talking to somebody about this. When I entered into ministry, my first um, my first understanding of what I was called to do was sort of like a doctor: do no harm, right? Don't make people's lives worse by being their minister. And I think that's where we started the, on harm and how we can do no harm. But I think that what we're called to do is to move. As I hope I've moved to my in my ministry to acknowledging and celebrating the values of our people and being a, an association that can receive the gifts of our people and trying to set up um, structures that do not get in the way of people giving their gifts to Unitarian Universalism. 
right? Um, we often think a lot about the harm that Unitarian Universalism has done to people, and that's valid. But really, think about what our association would have been if we could have received the gifts of all these people, right? If we just did not get in the way of people giving to Unitarian Universalism. Because I think we need to recognize that everybody who came in the door was trying to give a gift to us. And if we pushed them out, we didn't receive it, right? So it's their harm, but more, it's Unitarian Universalist harm. It's what we could have been that we are not. And so I think that our, our efforts are to try to increase the opportunity for people to gift Unitarian Universalism with all that they have. Dr. Natalie Fenimore, you never cease to amaze me. Thank you. Because just taking a moment to think of the people that I know personally who have been pushed out and the gifts that I know that they brought, it is, that's a really beautiful way to look at it, of who we could be if we actually let ourselves be that. That's really beautiful. Mary, do you want to, Marcus posted some numbers that made yeah, for the I, data collectors. Yeah, and I actually was thinking about it in terms of what a gift it was for all of the people who shared with us. So um, we, through interviews, focus groups, GA breakout sessions, um, and documents, um, we have over 80 hours of audio and um, video recordings, uh, 656 pages of documents, and over 1,100, as Natalie mentioned before, I mean, as Leslie mentioned before, participants in this work. And, you know, they're sharing their gifts with us. Um, led us to, um, we heard repeated recommendations. So that was another place where some of this came from because the, um, there were patterns in what people were recommending to us. Can I, did anything surprise any of you? I mean, I know sometimes like I'll go and think, oh, well, we already know this, but do we really, was there something that was genuinely um, shocking? I mean, I know it was painful. One of the commissioners shared or a couple, a few of you shared how painful a lot of this was and you were holding a lot, but did anything su genuinely surprise you and you weren't expecting something? I think one of the things that surprised me, and I'm keeping an eye on my mute button here, is um, that the range of, of perspectives in our association. And to me, that really speaks to why we need a, an institutional commitment to continue this and not break this work. We really basically stopped officially as an association doing this work for about a decade and, and including defunding um, the continental avenues for our youth and young adults. And as a result of that, I think what we've seen is a generational gap. It's not completely a generational gap, but you know, there's always exceptions, but there is a generational gap that is immense. It is a very large gap. And I think it's bigger than we expected it to be. It's larger and, and more difficult. And to me, that speaks to the need never to allow that kind of gap in our own, you know, commitment to our living tradition and our continued learning. I think that one thing that was a bit of a surprise, I think it's a continual surprise anytime I, I look at kind of how Black and people of color, disabled folks, queer folks are treated in institutions, uh, was just how much resilience was shown. Um, you know, by folks who were harmed over and over again for years that continued to show up and give to this space to give to this movement, um, to show that kind of, to show one side of reciprocity and not, you know, not see the other side. Um, I think that that was, that, that was really moving for me, just to see how much the principles of, of our denomination can mean to people um, and to see the ways in which they, through kind of the navigating that, this institutional oppression, they were able to, to continually kind of bring that forth and, and and show kind of some guiding, um, really some guiding leadership in a lot of cases, even through that, through that pain. I would say as a 
um, as a lay person and someone who came to this work as um, who's an experience had largely been as a congregant, uh, the complexity of our systems was really uh, surprising to me that it's the UUA and the UUMA and Lareda and all of these big pieces that need to work together for us to really make systemic and consistent change. And I think the complexity of that surprised me. I was, um, I don't know if I was surprised, but I was disappointed <laughs> in our continuing siloing. I, the, the, the complexity of our siloing was it's amazing. It's amazing. And how it keeps people from working on what is their common concern. You know, so um, for instance, in the, the ministerial credentialing process, uh, getting to the MFC, there are things that people across all sorts of identities really dislike about that process. But having a common conversation that isn't complicated by people's um, different identities makes it hard to then change, to think about how you might change. So uh, one of the things that was great about the ability of the commission to have the collaboratory, to have people come together across these different areas of Unitarian Universalism and have an aha moment, oh, we have this issue in common. You know, we are all uh, struggling with this area in the association. That was, um, I was surprised at how few opportunities there really are for people from different groups, different, um, with different identities to actually come together and have a, a fruitful conversation about their common interests in Unitarian Universalism, um, institutional change. So we have a question from Catherine Buck-Clarenbach who says, I'm interested in what kind of gap that generationally that you refer to, Leslie. How are young adults experiencing UU community differently from their elders or was it the Gen X people? What I was curious about where exactly you, you see that gap and how Catherine's question continued, how defunding, et cetera, uh, affected generations. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Catherine. Um, so a couple things that I'll say, and I know um, other folks can jump in on this, um, especially Sir, but, but the thing that I will say is, you know, we know, I want to pick up something Natalie said that doing this kind of exploration is essential, not just for people of color or other groups that we've kind of pushed to the margins, but it's essential for our, all of our survival. And this is a great place where to, to really see that because let me just say that for many congregations, young adults aren't uh, experiencing them at all. They have no young adults. They have no families. Increasingly, congregations don't have a DRE because they don't have any kids in their program. We know that we've lost hundreds of congregations that have closed their doors in the last you know, five to 10 years. And I know this from other work that I've done it for the association. So one of the reasons for this is that there is an ethos in new generations to be, to be aware, to be understanding of basic principles of diversity and equity and inclusion that many of our congregations, quite frankly, have not kept up with. So they walk into our doors, they experience something that is not welcoming or hospitable to them, and that's the last time they walk in. And so I think that's a really important thing to name. Uh, the other thing I'll name, and then I'll, I'll, I'd, I'd like to invite other folks to jump in, is... Um, that the defunding of our work nationally for youth and young adults means that there are youth and young adults of color, youth and young adults with other marginalized identities among us that have never experienced another person who has their identities as a Unitarian Universalist. And those spaces of gathering are so critical for people to realize that they are not alone and that this faith can actually hold them. That's why the national gatherings and the national convenings are so, 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 you know, critical to people's um, continuance and survival to, as Natalie says, give their gifts to us. So I can speak to that a, a little. I think that one of the biggest gaps is the, the gap between what brought a lot of newer, kind of younger um, social justice oriented UUs into the church and kind of what we've experienced as we've gotten here. Um, I think about, you know, 10 years ago, I joined UU, I joined the UU church because I found out that Rod Sterling was a UU 
that Ray Bradbury was that, um, you know, these writers who had this strong social justice history were, were part of this ongoing kind of progressive movement. Uh, and in 2014, when I went to Ferguson, the only one of, I think one of two organizations in my city uh, the, that supported me was the UU Church of Akron. And that, that was huge for me back then, you know? And I think that as I've gotten kind of further into the culture and uh, the, and seeing kind of some of the struggles that UU has right now, it's, it's, it's shocking sometimes to look at a faith that prided itself on such a progressive and sometimes confrontational uh, uh, movement around the abolition, around abolitionism, suffer the suffrage movement, um, the civil rights movement, to see that kind of have this almost reticence to, to change and this reluctance to really address what's happening now. Some of that has been really shocking. And I think that that's a, that's a major it's a major disconnect and kind of cognitive dissonance thing that happens for, for these young kind of activists coming in. <clears throat> I just note that there's a comment that says that the, um, what caused the downfall of my local congregation was the loss of religious education. It has to be a priority. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and I wanna say that I've heard people make comments about this kind of gap that we have within the understanding of these issues in Unitarian Universalism, that it's about millennials or it's about people in their twenties or whatever. And in my experience, it's really a gap that includes families, including anyone in the workforce has been exposed at some level to some form now of this kind of work in most professions. And so, uh, for families coming in, this also becomes a really important piece of um, what they consider necessary. I would want to touch on that too. You know, I'm I'm basically the oldest possible millennial, uh, so I have a daughter that's going through OWL right now. So it's it's very you know, and I think and she is one of you know one of two or three people of color at our church, which we've done a lot of work. So at the same time, that's it's still seeing her navigate these pressures and. and kind of and seeing her start to deal with the isolation of being one of the only youth of color when she goes to a con or into a space. Uh, it really, you know, it's, it, it motivates, I know it motivates me to make sure that, that this is a welcome space for all. Yeah, my own 23-year-old refused to go, <laughs> just, just said, I'm not going to another white space. And that was very painful and real. And I respected it, but I was sad. Natalie, you were going to say something? Yeah, well, I think um, this is sort of, this has been a long internal conversation in, in Unitarian Universalism about uh, how we often, um, you know, if we're going to talk about marginalized groups in society, uh, children and people who work with children often find themselves in those places. Um, also, uh, so our religious educators are not best supported in the structure, the institutional structure that we have, and their place as central to helping to grow our faith is not held up as best it might be or supported. So how might we do that institutionally? And um, it is a fact that people of color are more likely to be in our religious education programs, is more likely to be our children and our families and building in the, the kind of structural support for those people you know, um, is essential. I often say when I'm at a board meeting, um, how many of you on the board of your of any congregation began in religious education? And it is off, it is, I would say, the, the majority always. If we can do that well, that family making well, and get people to stick, that's our future as a as a denomination, and more so our reach into the world. You know, for every everybody who's touched in RE. There, are, there must be 20 people who are touched by that, who you're never gonna see, the cousins, the uncles, the aunts, the grandparents, but the questions that end up in a family about justice, about theology, about sexuality, all of those questions end up in a whole family system, a whole unit of people, a whole neighborhood, a school bus full of kids 
could end up having those Unitarian Universalist kind of conversations, a classroom, a playground. So our reach, I think, is, is much greater than we often think our number is if we are attentive to those families. Because if a family is not present, then that reach is not present. So um, our, it's another way of us embedding justice in a community. You know, little people conversations are important conversations. You know, like, you know, why I don't have a, why you shouldn't, you know, the kids who say, well, I don't think you should be a bully because I learned this and blah, blah, you know, in my congregation, my religious educator says, that's important conversation that I don't think we give, we see as valuable as it is. You know, and I, um, I know that that's hard for people to understand that they're supporting camps and conference centers, they're supporting kids out in the world who they may not see on a regular Sunday morning, but we have to be able to see who is in our association writ large. And perhaps you're never actually gonna see them that much, but they are there and what how we serve them is important. Amen. And if I could just jump on that, oh, go ahead, Mary. No, go ahead. I have a different question. So okay. Ahead. I just want but what you just said about bullying, Natalie, you know, to me, it's like our religious values and our, especially our, you know, universalist side of, of this ever expanding who has worth. Our kids are also the ones that are equipped to say, no, I'm not going to put up with that transphobic comment, or I'm not going to put up with that racist comment. And that's a critical part of our um, religious teaching, not only to our children, but also to our adults and giving everybody that lifelong set of tools to be to be that force really critical and if if i might when you know natalie you talked about the what unitarian universalism has lost um from not listening to the voices that have been in the room all along and that's not history even i mean it is it is our history but it's also what Unitarian Universalism has lost um, by not listening to the youth who is not willing to put up with the transphobia in the room um, because it loses both the opportunity to, to, to change and be more welcoming and address our transphobia and it also silences that youth. Um, and I see that a lot. Um, and I saw it a lot when you talk, Leslie, about defunding youth and young adult uh, people of color gatherings and anti-racism work that youth, um, both youth of color and also white youth who were who were active in anti-racism work came back to congregations and said, okay, I'm like equipped to lead on this. And congregations said, shut up young person. <laughs> and, and what have we lost from, from not allowing that sort of leadership too? So Asia, I think you had a question. Well, I, I was at I was one of the folks who was at the collaboratory um, last year in October, and it was compelling. I was um, honored to be there. It was about like, thirty plus folks. Um, my question is: Are is the commission's report going to include recommendations for what the institution um, it would be great to do or suggest? I know we're very allergic to the idea of this is what you need to do. We need to somehow add extra words to make it easier for folks. But are, are you all going to, because there were a lot of great, I, I felt recommendations from the collaboratory, in addition to all the reports that you have the, compiling all this data. So are you going to make recommendations? Absolutely. Um, so we're in the middle of, and we actually were just in Minneapolis also, or in St. Paul also doing a commission meeting uh, right before the Harper Jordan Symposium. So we were literally wrestling that out. And we have uh, recommendations we have 10 areas. Again, we want what we want to say is that it, this is about institutional change. It is not just about personal incidents or one or two incidents, you know, of this is this is a systemic issue that we have to address systemically. So we have 10 very large areas that we plan to address. In, and then within that, we have what we're considering like our big rocks, the priority recommendations. And then we are also going to, as much as we have space and time, we're going to also collect some of the other ideas that we have. Because as we know, 
not not one size does not fit all with this, right? What works in a in a larger community or congregation might not work in a smaller congregation. Um, and we have all kinds of new com- you know communities and con- but we're going to try to collect a lot of that piece in, in that. And our plan is to actually publish this. Um, we we have a we're, we're talking to Skinner House. We're planning on getting this published, and we hope to have it ready to release at this general assembly in 2020. So, but there will definitely be recommendations, and we're actually trying hard to make sure that we don't make so many recommendations that uh, we make no recommendations. We're trying to be very strategic about the ones that we heard the most uh, information and support for in terms of data. Um, one more thing I want, I don't want to forget to mention, you all have been keeping a blog for the past year plus that has been extraordinary. And I've actually sent almost every single one of your posts to the, our board, our local congregation. So um, Marcus, if because Marcus looks like he's, he's, they are watching, uh, please post the link to the blog because it is absolutely compelling. Read every post that the commission has put out. Um, I've been deeply appreciative of that. So thank you for that blog. So do the recommendations, you mentioned that there were patterns in the interviews that came up that the same thing. So are the, are the recommendations, well, I'm curious if, if it's easy, maybe too hard to say, what were some of those repetitive things that came up in the interviews that you heard over and over? Um, I will take a cut at this and then other folks can jump in. But, you know, one of the things we heard was around the fact that this is not just something we should silo to the side, right? This is, this is essential to living our faith, as Sir said, and that um, when people come and they don't see that, it, it feels like hypocrisy to them. That was something we heard over and over again. Um, we also heard that there are, there's so much complexity in our associational governance, especially in the times that we're living in, where it's actually hard to get people to give their time because they have so much else going on that it makes it really hard to actually make progress on this because when you make it in one organization, you actually have to go through the same thing in another. And that's a real problem for, for everybody. Um, we've talked a lot about, we've heard a lot about, and we actually issued a report last um, fall um, about what it means to have right livelihood for religious professionals of color. And that was an important area that we have been looking, hearing about. But on the other side of that, what does it mean to have right engagement for people that come into our congregations that just want to be a part of us, be, be a member, be a friend of a congregation um, and all, and the barriers to that, just that, that are everything from just, you know, um, blatant um, ignorance of what it means to microaggress somebody, you know, stuff that's pretty commonly known in the greater society. Um, And, and then the other area I'll mention, and we have, we have quite a few that we're looking at, but is the area of justice making what do we do in our justice making when we don't privilege the opinions of those who are most affected, which often in our justice making are people of color, indigenous people. Um, and when we don't listen to their voices or when we don't follow their lead, when we assume that we know what the answer is um, better than they do, how does that affect you know, our justice making? And that's a really important piece as well. And I would invite um, Sir to talk a little bit about um, about reparations and accountability, because those are two other areas that we're gonna be making recommendations on. I think one of the key things to think about, you know, around this area of the idea of reparations is that it's more than just, I I think it's taken on this context of almost like a payoff or a check in our society. I know when I was growing up, that was the, that was kind of the prevailing understanding of it. Reparations, and really, it's it's a prerequisite. It's a prerequisite to reconciliation. You know, there there needs to be a, a reciprocal relationship um, in community. And when you have this kind of sitting historical harm that's still causing the inequity that we see, that still has these effects, we have to we have to address that in some way. And sometimes that involves changing material conditions around equity around access, um, it means empowering folks and to, to, to cultivate health in their own communities sometimes. Um, so a lot of it is, is really, it, our, you know, my kind of working definition of reparations is, is a bigger and more kind of inclusive process than just, it's about 
kind of giving money away or taking money from someone else. Um, I think something that was mentioned a lot, uh, much earlier in the call is just that this is a process that we are inviting folks with privilege and power to be a part of. This is about a collaborative effort and it's not so much about taking money away from one group as much as it is sharing and it is kind of co-building uh, this, this future, a sustainable future. And I would say one other thing we heard was there's a great desire for people to connect in this work, to share ideas and models of what, what they see that might be working in their community with other people, or also to share the different things that they're struggling with to see if other people have solved that or have ideas about it. And so it feels like um, there is a, a call for collaboration space around this work. Yeah, I just want to mention about that, that Mary has had more than a full-time volunteer job with this about, uh, sometimes people hear this conversation, they think it's just about people of color, it's just about giving, you know, and, and Mary has really been engaged with people who have talked deeply about the meaning of this work for them as white people. And I think that's been, you know, her particular ministry, if you will, in this work. So that's, I think, Mary, just a, a, about that might be a great. Yeah, I think that um, there is, a real um, willingness to engage um, and to be accountable and to work through what do accountability models look like. And I'd say that's where a lot of the conversation is. How do you do that both within your community and when you're doing outreach to, um, to folks beyond your, uh, beyond your congregation? And so how do you do that in really accountable ways? Um, also hearing a lot about, um, about um, what that, um, what that pushback feels like for people who really struggle to separate um, this as a personal conversation from a systemic and institutional conversation, right? And everybody is really, I think you hear a lot for the people who are engaged in this, how they struggle with getting people focused on the institutional and systemic part of this change and not, the, not, not um, viewing this as personal or purely personal work. That's an important part of it, but we have to be able to engage at this on multiple levels. So as we approach the end of our hour, um, I wonder, you have seven months left, uh, what you'll be doing. And, um, and also just to invite each of you to say things that we didn't ask that you really wanted to say today. So I'd love to hear from each of you. I'll just say this, um, we'll be, we'll be uh, we, two things we're working on that are very exciting. One of, one of them is we are writing this report and it is, um, it is gonna be a labor of love, but it will be a, a big labor to kind of distill down just all that we've heard into what we think are the key leverage points. And that's what we're really looking at. What are the investments we can make that will make a difference and um, keep us from continuing to have this kind of groundhog day story where we just keep going back to the to the same point on this conversation in different levels. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing that we're working on is um, at General Assembly, we're going to have, as we um, bring this report to, to, to our beloved assembly, we are not just going to talk through the report. We're going to actually have panels that represent all the areas that we're making recommendations. And we're going to show people that are actually already doing this. Because that's the other big finding for us is that there are many, many people in different places that are already addressing these issues. And we just need to have a way of curating that and getting it out to the people that are really interested in doing this. And um, so that'll be the other piece that we're doing, which is really exciting. I would like for people, you know, as part of this process, as we finish up, that people start thinking through how they are going to um, respond, how they're going to support, not just our particular recommendations, but support an implementation process, and how they're going to embed change and the capacity for change and accountability within our association. You know, how are we building a process that is sustainable? And this is just one 
piece of that, how people carry it forward is really, really important that people really feel connected to the process going forward. As Leslie said, this cannot be another Groundhog Day moment. It has to be something that we have agreed to is the moment that we will change sort of the hinge for whatever comes next. And I think also we have to understand that part of institutional change is building a process that can also support personal transformation and change and personal conversations. So the structure that, we, that we're building can hold the personal and people don't actually have to pick an either or, either personal or institutional. The institutional structure will enable us to better hold the places for personal conversation, personal transformation, personal change. It'll give people the better tools for leaning into that process. Right now, if you're trying to do personal change and you move in and it gets hard and you're in pain, you know, where are we as, a, as an association able to hold that and help you to move forward? So um, I think that people need, are going to have to struggle with how they come into this process, but the association can be a better um, container for them as they move forward. And I think that if people study the recommendations with that kind of open heart and mind, that they'll be able to find their place in this new association that we're hoping to build. And I would say I want people to just stay in it, to not let this be another moment that we let pass us by because it is so important for us to do this now and to just stay with it. And every person I know has something that they can bring to this work, some positive piece of change that they can make wherever it is that they're operating and whatever that community looks like for them. And so I just wanna invite everybody into it and, and to ask them to stay in it. I think I would somewhat echo that, that call for resilience and persistence. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the Reverend Dr. King's Ware lecture. And in it, he lifts up three uh, UU reverends who came to visit him in Montgomery during the bus boycotts. Um, the first reverend he mentioned was Reverend David Cole, who ended his ministry at West Shore in Cleveland, Ohio. So he, he ended his ministry, in, I, I believe it was 1986. And when the Yuga Church of Background, my church, when we got started with our kind of racial justice task force and really started to look at now, like, how do we do this anti-racist work? Uh, West Shore was our kind of, they were the ones we looked to for mentorship. And they really helped to guide us along and get us started on that path. You know, this is a long game. That's the truth. Changing institutions takes time. Um, and we have to show this kind of persistence. You know, that is an over 50 year legacy of racial justice work that went from that lecture all the way to here. And it's gonna take that same kind of, kind of joint resilience to get us to that beloved community that King talked about. Thank you so much. People have made comments we haven't had a chance to respond to. I have to just say, sir, since we share Akron, that Sojourner Truth gave her Ain't I a Woman speech at the Akron Church. So that legacy goes back far of, of prophetic witness and ignoring it. <laughs> but it, it's, there's our history. It's all of the above. Thank you so much for your work. I know it sounds like many, many, many hours um, and may we all, I, I'm just really excited about where we can go together and the vision that you're putting forward. Um, and Meg, you know. mm -hmm. Meg, can we say that our, our hope is that the commission will come back once this, once this report is done? I just want to like telegraph that for our, our regular, our viewers out there. Um, we want, we're, we're, we're going to hopefully continue this conversation once those recommendations are public and actually get to talk about what they are. So we're- That I'm might really have to be a two hour that. show. I just want to <laughs> name. We might have to extend. We might just uh, give you like the month of April. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> there, there, there are 10 points. We might need 10 shows, you know. <laughs> but I also want to keep people, just tell people we do keep posting on our website, you know, as, as Asia mentioned, so follow us because we're, we're, we're in dialogue and we want to remain in dialogue with people. 
Antonia, have you posted that website in the chat? We'll no, do I'm that. Good friend Marcus Fogliano, um, just killing it with all things. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus. I really appreciate your your help today. Yes, as Marcus's uh, questions, comments, and help have been quite wonderful. Thank you so much, all of you. Um, yeah, for all. Thanks of it. for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. See you next time when we'll talk about, as we discussed, the very important role that Lareda and religious education plays in all of this. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.